Right, you can open your Bible to the book of John, chapter 1. For those visiting with us, we just started the book of John last week. And we will be here for the foreseeable future. So we're in the book of John. So just a little bit of a recap from last week. John's prologue is really, really, really important because the way that we look at the book of John is through the lenses or through the filter of John's prologue. So the beginning is where John is saying, this is, this is in a nutshell who Jesus is. And this is the way you need to see Jesus or perceive Christ as the gospel unfolds. And this is very, very important. And we saw that John's gospel starts differently than the other synoptic gospels, other than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They're all very similar, which is why they're called the Synoptic Gospels, but now you have John that's not a part of the Synoptic Gospels because it's not really synonymous, or it's, or it's not, it's not, I'm sorry, it's not a, it's not the same synopsis. It doesn't capture the same story. So you have in the book of John a very Christocentric, a very Christological, Christ-heavy, whatever you want to say there, uh, uh, telling of the story of Jesus. I mean, it is... It is incredibly, incredibly doctrinal, and this is this is on this is intentional, because we have to you have to because I told you last week because Christianity hinges on who Christ is as we understand him rightly. This is why I will have a conversation with a Jehovah's Witness and a Mormon who believe in Christ but a different type of Christ, therefore a different type of gospel, and the gospel itself hinges on the person of Christ. So I will with confidence and. No problems. Look at a Jehovah's Witness. Look at a Mormon and so many others to say, you are not categorically a Christian according to historical Christianity, according to biblical Christianity, because you've redefined who Jesus is. There's a lot of things that we can get away with not agreeing with one another. There's things that we disagree with that creates different denominational borders. So I don't, I don't baptize babies, so that would keep me from being... Uh, convictionally a, a Presbyterian. Now, our Presbyterian brothers and sisters are brothers and sisters in Christ. Absolutely, because that's not a first-tier salvific issue. Getting the right Jesus is a first-tier salvific issue. Wrong Jesus, wrong gospel. Wrong gospel, no hope, no life, no redemption, no promise, no anything. And so that's why it matters that we get this right. So as we saw in the beginning, when John begins, he says, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God and the word was God he was in the beginning with God all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made and we stopped there and we saw the relationship that Jesus has to time as the eternal God we saw the relationship that Jesus has to the Trinity and we saw the relationship that Jesus has to creation because Jesus created all things, which it's verified in the book of John, it's verified in the book of Colossians, and in other places throughout the New Testament. Jesus has created all things. He's responsible for the creation of all things. And then John shows us more of his relationship. He shows us not only the relationship that Jesus has to time, to the Trinity, and to creation, but he shows us the relationship that Jesus has to life, to light, and to darkness. So these are the three this, is, this makes the total of six. This, this is the three uh, relationship dynamics that Jesus has that's left in this introductory portion of the book of John. So verse 4 reads as this, which is where we'll start today. And we're only going to cover verses 4 and 5 because as you see in verse 6, 
you are introduced to a new character in the story. So we'll pick up there with John the Baptist next week. In him was life, it says of Christ. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. This can probably go without saying, but I'm going to say it anyway. But understand that when John's writing this, he's writing of his eyewitness account. He's writing in the past tense. But Jesus very much is the life. Jesus very much is the light. This narrative is still, is still happening. Jesus is still illuminating minds. He's still renewing minds. He's still the life. He's still the only way to God the Father. None of that has changed. But John writes in a past tense because of what he has witnessed. So in him was the life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So this is where we start today. Very simple outline. Just those three components, those three relationship dynamics. The first is Jesus' relationship to life. So Jesus is the creator, right? So it would be easy to approach this text and say, okay, I see that the, you know, I, I see that the, you know, the, it's pretty, it's pretty straightforward. The, the Greek word there is zoe, is life, meaning that he made life. Obviously, he's the creator. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. He made all things. All things came into being through him. So it would be easy to reduce this text to just saying, well, it's just a, a, a reiteration of what John has already said. John's just being redundant to be thorough. That's not what's happening. To be sure, Jesus is the creator of all things. He is responsible for physical life. He is responsible for all creation and therefore responsible for life. But the intent of this text right here is not to be redundant, to be thorough. The intent of this text is to say, Jesus is the creator, but in addition to him being responsible for physical life, he's responsible for, for spiritual life. He's responsible for spiritual life. This is, this is a big deal. This is a big part of the lenses that J John is providing us to understand the book of the gospel. Because when Jesus goes through and he's doing all these miracles and he's equating himself to be God, you can say, this should not come as a surprise to me because this is exactly what John was pointing to in his prologue. This is exactly what he was teaching and telling us. So Jesus as the creator, to be sure, is the giver of physical life, but he's also the redeemer. He's the giver of spiritual life. The deeper intent of this text is to present Jesus as the giver of spiritual life. And I'm going to argue that John has already shown the relationship Jesus has to creation. So what would be the need other than just being thorough, which, granted, that happens a lot in the, in the scriptures. But what would be the need, other than to be thorough, to say what he's already said in this short prologue? Why fill this short prologue with redundancies? I don't think he is. But he's showing the relationship to uh, Christ's relationship to spiritual life, to redemption, as he is the redeemer. The book of John being a gospel is about Jesus the redeemer. The book of the gospel is about redemption. That's the centerpiece of all the Gospels is Jesus as the Redeemer. Jesus as the one who would provide hope for all who would believe. So that is the dominating theme of all the Gospels. John being no exception here, or, or, or John being no different in that sense to the others, that is the dominating theme. But listen to this. If you were to peruse through all the chapters of John's Gospel, these are the things that you would run through, and we won't go through all. We'll go through... You know, I'll just mention maybe five of them. John 1, Jesus is the light and the life. 
John 3, Jesus explains the new birth and its necessity towards salvation. This is to argue that this is all about salvation. It's all about redemption. John 7, Jesus is the fountain of living water. He tells this woman at the well, this is, you come to me and you'll never thirst again. He's speaking in a salvific context to her. And this context is important. John 11, Jesus is the resurrection and the life. That is salvific in its context. John 14, 6, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. Jesus is not saying I'm the life as in I am just the creator of all things. He says I'm the giver of eternal life. I'm the giver of hope. I'm the giver of restoration and reconciliation. It's me and it all happens through me. This is the dominating theme of the book of John. And she's excited about the book of John and I like that. But there is a connection between life and light. But there is a connection between life and light. Now, I told you last week it gets really doctrinal really fast. There's going to be some doctrinal stuff that we go through here because that is the nature of the book of John, especially in the prologue. And you have to understand that there is a relationship between life and light. One is contingent on the other. And I'll explain what I mean here. To be given life necessarily means to be given light. So Jesus was the life and the life was the light of men he was the light of men jesus was the life and he was the light of men jesus is the light of men he is the light to all men without exception and let me explain what i mean by that because i want to i want to show you how jesus is the light of all men without exception but he's also the light of all men who believe and there's a difference and there's a difference and let me explain through this so just stay with me okay stay with me if you have questions about this when I'm done that is fine uh, these are this is the way that I interpret the way that I understand the scriptures and I want to walk you through and help you understand how I'm seeing this text so he's the light of all men without exception Romans 1 you can turn with me there you can scroll with me there slide with me there or you can just listen to what I have to say here about Romans 1. Let me read to you, I have it saved here, verses 18 through 21. This is, this is Jesus as the light of all men, or to all men without exception. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. So you've got those who, are, who suppress the truth, those who would deny that Jesus is Lord, those who would deny the deity of Christ, those that would deny that there's a God, those that would de deny these things. But God says, listen, for what can be known about God, or, or the Holy Spirit speaking through Paul, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. God has shown it to them. I watched a debate not too long ago where this guy was debating uh, an atheist, a scientist, and he was saying, listen, you guys believe. You believe. And they're like, no, we don't believe. That's why we're having this debate is because we don't believe. You do believe. That's the nature of this debate. He says, no, you believe. And he kept, he kept ringing that bell, and he kept going back to Romans 1. He says, it says that it's been revealed to you. You do know. It's been shown to you. You may not realize that you know, but you know. And he was just very a matter of fact. And I thought, I wonder if that's really helpful. It's true. So it was an interesting debate. But that's exactly what he's saying is for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Plain to whom? Because God has shown it to whom? 
shown it to those who suppress truth. There's the connection, okay? So listen to this. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, his divine nature, has been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. And all these things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Why are they without excuse? Because the light has revealed himself to them through nature, through creation. In a general sense, that light has been revealed. You can come up to a lost person who just rejects the word of God, but they can read it for themselves. They can have truth before their eyes. They can reject it. They can suppress it, but they have it before them. So that in a sense, light has been shared. Truth has been shared. And that's what I mean when I say to all men without exception. John 1, 9. The true light, just a few verses down, the true light which gives light to everyone. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. So for those that would say the true light which, which gives light to everyone, if they're saying that everyone is everyone without distinction as opposed to everyone without exception, I would say, well, the problem is it's saying everyone who has come to the world, and then it says but the world did not know him. So I think that there is a general light giving. There's a general, uh, you could even say a general gospel call. I can say to everyone in this room, I can say, come to Christ. Here's the gospel. Trust Christ. Believe Christ. Trust Christ. And there may be someone who walks away not a Christian. I've given a call. There it is. I'm petitioning you to come. Trust Jesus. But the truth has been given. The light has been shared in that sense. And that is... Jesus as the light of men without exception. Hang with me, but here's the intent of the text, I believe, that Jesus is the light to all men who believe. There's a truth there. There's a truth that light has been shared, but there's a very specific salvific light that is shared, which I think John is arguing here. Let me give you an illustration. When is a flashlight most useful? When you actually cut the thing on. If you're walking around in a dark cave and you have a flashlight, the flashlight is of no benefit to you, unless it's a big mag light and something strange comes up to you and you beat it with it, right? So as far as illumination purposes, a flashlight is of no use to you in your dark cave unless you cut the flashlight on. And the gospel is the same way. The, the truth of, of Jesus, even John 3.16 makes it clear. It said that who has eternal life? Those who do what? Believe. The gospel is applied in that sense salvifically to those who trust and follow Christ, who put on the Lord Jesus Christ to follow the New Testament. But for those that have the gospel, for those that reject the gospel, for those that die without the gospel, the gospel never did anything for them. It was of no benefit to them. Not that it could not have benefit, uh, a benefit to them. Not that it was weak or, or impotent. Not that it was any of those things. But the gospel is effective for those who actually trust Christ. So I would say this context is in the context of salvation. Here's evidence one. The prologue serves as a filter through which we can process and understand the work and the purpose of Jesus. His purpose was to do what? To seek and to save those who are lost. Evidence two. There is a pattern of Jesus being referred to as the light throughout John's gospel, most of which it is in a salvific way that they speak of him as light. And I think here is no different. John eight twelve. again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. 
John 9, 5, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. John 12, 46, I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. In John 12, 36, while you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of the light. Evidence 3, this must be salvific in context because otherwise, how do you explain the light? How do you explain Jesus being present and so many not submitting to his Lordship. Let me explain what I mean by that. that. There is a light that comes but cannot be seen because of darkness, because of blindness. That's the illustration I just gave you. I'm sharing the gospel with I don't know how many people. And over and over and over again, I see people not believing, not coming to faith in Christ. It's not an issue with the power of the gospel. It's an issue of darkness. It's an issue of lostness. And until that saving light is revealed, they don't get it. They won't see it. They won't understand it. They won't respond to it. Because light has been given, there's a general explanation of the gospel to all men. Now, there's plenty of tribes and stuff that have never heard of it. There's plenty of people that have never heard of it. But there are lots of people who have and still lots of people who reject. So they've been exposed to truth. They've been exposed to light. But until there's a light that works to dispel the darkness, to eradicate the darkness, they will not see. If you are a blind person and I hold a flashlight in front of your eyes, you might feel warmth, but you will not see light because your eyes cannot receive light. That is what happens when you are blind. That is a part of it. So someone who's totally blind, imagine being a pitch black cave. I've been in a black cave before where there was absolutely no light. We went far enough into that cave where light just did not make it in. And so we stood there, and I've never experienced darkness like that. You cannot, your eyes don't adjust. You can't sit in there for an hour, and your eyes adjust, and finally you can see, because there's no light that's coming in. It's just not there. If you say, well, my eyes adjust to, to darkness, that's because it's not pitch black darkness. It's because there is light, and eventually your eyes adjust, which means they receive light so that you can see things. So there's a light that comes but cannot be seen because of darkness, because of blindness. This would be the general call of the gospel. This would be the take it to every nation, every tongue, every tribe. Let everyone know that Jesus is Lord. And those appointed to salvation, they believed. The gospel still saved. But it saves those who Christ in his love and grace illuminates with a light that dispels darkness. So there's one kind of light, but there's another light. There is a light that comes and dispels the darkness and gives sight to blindness. That would be the effectual call of the gospel. So let me explain to you that there is an inseparable relationship between life and light. You cannot separate the two. Jesus cannot be your light without giving you life. He cannot be your light. Biblically, he doesn't illuminate in that way without first giving you life. There's no one who was elected before the foundations of the world that is in hell today. It doesn't, it doesn't work that way. You understand? It doesn't work that way. If God has given salvific light, you don't walk around and end your life separated from Christ when he has given you that effectual call. Now, that's highly doctrinal. There's lots of debate and discussions about those things. Those are my positions. And I'll explain some more biblically of that now. So those appointed to salvation believed. In other words, no one who has been appointed for salvation will finish their days in unbelief. Again, let me say that. No one who has been appointed for salvation will finish their days in unbelief. 
the scripture says in John 6, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Again, all that the Father gives me will come to me. They will come. All the Father has given Jesus from the beginning of time to the very end of all things. Jesus is making the promise which should instill confidence in you and in me. And he says, all of those people, all that the Father has given me will come to me. They will come to me. It's going to happen. Jesus is making this declaration. How else do you interpret this? And then it says, for I have come down from heaven. I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. Job 42, 2 says, nothing can thwart, nothing can prevent, nothing can spoil or frustrate the will of God. Romans 9, 14 through 23 says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says that Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whom he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? You get that? For who can resist his will? Paul is not actually expecting an explanation as to who can resist the will of God because no one can. This is what it says. Now, granted, there might be some compatibility going on, a deep doctrinal thing that's happening where you see that God's will is that we don't sin. But yes, we sin all the time. So how do you, how do you reconcile that with the fact that Paul is saying, here's the rhetorical question, who can resist the will of God? The answer is no one. There's a compatibility. There's some major doctrinal things that are happening here and then it says you will say to me why does he find fault for who can resist his will but who are you O man to answer back to God well what is molded say to its molder why have you made me like this has the potter no right over the clay to make out the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use what if God desiring to show his wrath to make known his power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. And then John 6 continued. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. He will lose not one, he will lose nothing. All the Father has given the Son, he will not lose a single and it can't be everybody because that's universalism and that's a problem that contradicts the teachings of God's justice and hell and all of these things the relationship between life and light works this way we are brought to life so that we can see the light a blind man can't see light that's right in front of his face unless his vision is restored and the analogy is, the analogy is true a dead man doesn't receive truth, doesn't receive life until he's brought to life. Ephesians 2 kind of captures that whole issue when it says that you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. We were all by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. And then it says, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ. The active agent is God making us alive. When we're made alive, we can finally see 
the glory to a degree of Jesus. It requires life to receive light. And Jesus is responsible for both. In other words, we are in good hands. Jesus is the life of men and gives them spiritual light. But the light pierces the darkness. So there's the relationship that Jesus has to life, the relationship Jesus has to light, and now this relationship to darkness. So let me tell you about darkness. Darkness is the broken world that we live in. It's the broken world that we live in. It's the fallen state of the world and rebellion. It's the world that's led by the prince of the power of the air, Satan. It's all of these things. This is darkness as I understand it in the scriptures. And darkness is an active force. And why do I think it's an active force? Because listen again to John. It says that the light came into the darkness and the darkness did not what? Did not overcome the light. I don't know what your translation says. Maybe your translation says the darkness did not comprehend the light. Does anyone's translation say that that you know of? Stevens says it did not comprehend the light. The actual word is overcome. Comprehend's not a bad word, but here's the problem I have with comprehend. Comprehend is understands the light, which is true, which is true. Because this is what darkness can understand the things of God, right? What human can fully understand the things of God. So that's true, but the actual Word is overcome, which means to seize. There is, there is a role that darkness plays in actively trying to seize the light. Darkness hates the light. It says that in the scriptures. And darkness is laboring to eradicate light. It is proactive. It is a definitely a formidable foe that works against you. It works against me. It works against all light. It's an active force. John 12, 35 says, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest the darkness do what? Lest it overtake you. The darkness is active. It pursues you. It wants to overtake you. It wants to rule over you. It's a dangerous thing to think of darkness as a passive agent. It's a very dangerous thing because that implies that, well, as long as I don't drift over here, I'll be okay. You need to be moving away from darkness always because darkness is always tracking you down. It chases you. It wants you. You understand this? It's not just, let me just stay on the fringes as long as I stay here, which I get the sentiment, but we need to be creating distance between us and darkness. There needs to be motion. We need to be just as, an act, we need to be just as active a force as darkness is in order to stay away from its dangerous grasps. Darkness will not leave you alone if you leave it alone. Darkness is not a wild animal that is defending itself and will most likely leave you be as long as you don't mess with it. That's not how darkness works. Darkness is a powerful force, not just an active force. Darkness is deadness. And let me explain. This is just what the scriptures teach about darkness. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of of the world according to the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience you were not just in darkness Paul says in Ephesians that you were darkness so darkness is deadness it is a dangerous powerful force darkness is not just deadness but it's also the absence of anything good in us Romans seven eighteen. for I know that goodness 
that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. It also says, for there is no one righteous, no, not one. Why? Because darkness is the absence of anything good in us. And we were all darkness before we were rescued from darkness and brought into the kingdom of his beloved son. Darkness is not just the absence of anything good in us, but darkness is an inability towards good. Now, let me just step away. Let me help you navigate through this a little bit. So darkness is an inability towards good. It renders us incapable of good. Not only renders you incapable of good, it strips away any desire in you of truly being good. That is the full nature of being dead in your trespasses and sins. That is what it is to be the epitome of darkness. Listen to the scriptures, Romans 8, 7 through 8. Because the mind is set on flesh, it is hostile towards God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God. Not only does it not subject itself, but it says it is not even able to do so. Under darkness, even if you wanted to, you would not be able to do so. That is how powerful and how deadly darkness is. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. For their foolishness to him, he cannot understand them. He cannot understand them. This is what darkness does. This is what Jesus came to dispel. Dispel the fact that in darkness we can't approach God. We don't want to approach God because we're dead. And dead men and dead women spiritually don't chase after God for spiritual vitality. They don't do it. This is the essence of Ephesians 2. This is the essence of 1 John. This is the essence of Romans 9. This is the essence of 1 Corinthians 2.14, Romans 8, and so many other verses. Darkness is an inability towards good, but it's also a slavery of the soul. It's slavery of the soul. And I'm trying to paint a picture so you can see how bad darkness is. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, Romans 6.17, you became obedient from the heart of to the form of teaching to which you were committed. But thanks be to God. Thanks be to God, the Son, Jesus Christ, who as the light and the life of men pierced the darkness, vanquished the darkness, eradicated the darkness. You see, I think it's important that you understand the power and the depth of darkness in, in, in order for you to rightly appreciate the light and the power of the light. And let me, let me move towards the close with these thoughts. It's important to see the power of darkness so that you might appreciate the power of light. The light shines in the darkness is what John says. The relationship between light and darkness is not that of two co-equal giants that are battling it out for all eternity. And we're sitting on the edge of our chair hoping that Jesus comes out on top. Or maybe we're sitting there and we're just knowing that Jesus will win, but man, it's going to be a battle to the very end. This is not the way we need to look at that. This isn't Hollywood. If Hollywood was making a movie where Jesus won, that's probably how it would end up. Why? Because that's more entertaining than a one-sided fight. When I, was a, when I was a child, I grew up listening to Carmen. I don't know if any of you know of Carmen. Some laughs there, right? So my parents got me cassette tapes of Carmen. I love listening to Carmen, and there was this one song called The Champion that Carmen would sing. 
and I would get just, I would geek out over the song, right? So Carmen's singing, and or whatever he did, he kind of talked, sang through all of his songs, you know, so yeah, maybe rap some, he was, he was, he was definitely a pragmatist, and so there's this song where this called the champion, and, and, it, and it's introduced as Jesus is in one corner and Satan is in the other corner. And as he's talking, singing, rapping through this song, you know, what ends up happening is 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 they're exchanging blows, and and Satan knocks down Jesus, and you're thinking that Jesus is going to be gone. And I get it, I get it. When we think of the cross, we think of the cross. We think Jesus actually did really die, and then he rose again. I get that sentiment, but I just want to be clear. I just want to be clear. That Jesus is not getting worn out or beaten down by the enemy, all right? This is not how the battle goes. This is not it. All right, Jesus endures whatever the enemy brings because Jesus decides that he's going to endure it. He allows these things. But in no way, shape, or form is this an equal battle because the light pierces the darkness. And the light doesn't just pierce the darkness, but to follow the analogy that John is using under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, if I'm in a dark cave and I cut on a bright spotlight, the light... Uh, the darkness is absolutely gone. Darkness does not exist in the presence of light. You understand how this works. So John uses this language so that we can understand clearly what it is when Jesus eradicates the darkness in our lives. It's nowhere to be found if we're in Christ. Not to say that there's still darkness that we entertain. As Christians, we sin. But the darkness that is lostness, the darkness that is your sin condemns you to eternal separation from God, it is gone. He has eradicated it. As powerful and as dangerous darkness is, there is no comparison between Jesus and the world. There's no comparison between Jesus and the ruler of the world. John uses this particular language because nothing dispels darkness but light. Nothing. But the presence of light completely dispels the presence of darkness. And this is John's point in showing us that the power of the Messiah is what we're going to encounter throughout his gospel. And this is how John sets it up. So here's my brief application to you, and I've made some application throughout, but here's just some thoughts to walk away with. A, the scripture is clear that we're to walk in the light. If you're children of the light, you walk in the light. If you would boast and say the light has eradicated, has dispelled darkness in my life, then what people should see in you is that you're a child of the light. And there should be no darkness in you. That's why Paul labors to say, look, if you're a believer, there should be no slander, there should be no malice, there should not be any of these things, immorality, named among you. Because it, it's a false representation, I'm sorry, it's a false representation of the power of the gospel. Because what did the gospel do? It eradicated light. If people see your life and there seems to be darkness, it's a false presentation of Jesus. So walk in the light. Walk in the light. This is exactly what Jake read for us from 1 John 1, 5-7. Let me reread that so we can kind of put that bookend on it. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie. We do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another in the blood of Jesus, his son, uh, and, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And if that's happened, not only is Christ victorious, but we are victorious. Not only do we walk in light, but we walk in victory. If we do not walk in victory, it sends the message that Christ wasn't actually victorious. And it sends a wrong message to the world. It sends a wrong message to lost people. It sends a wrong message to believers. 
So what message do we want to send? That Christ is victorious, therefore we live a victorious life. That sin is not our master, that sin is not our slave. We're sinners, yes, we fall, yes, we're broken. But the Lord in His grace, because of the gospel, we can repent and be restored and be right, be reconciled. So live in victory, walk in the light. Live in the victory that Jesus has secured. Walk in the light of Jesus' glory as He has rescued us from the domain of darkness and He's brought us into the kingdom of His beloved Son. Let's pray.